Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. If instead Putin doubles down, then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance. Sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster. We could have a massive miscalculation and we will then be in a full-scale war across the globe. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. On today's programme, we're speaking to the West of England Metro Mayor Dan Norris. And with record numbers of COVID positive patients in hospital, we're going to update on the coronavirus picture with Oksana Pysik from the UCL School of Pharmacy. So Conservative MP Crispin Blunt has this morning apologised for a statement defending fellow MP Imran Ahmed Khan, who was convicted of sexual assault. Crispin Blunt, who leads the LGBT plus all-party parliamentary group, called the verdict a dreadful miscarriage of justice in a statement on his website, which has subsequently been removed. Boris Johnson, meanwhile, has approved an inquiry into Rishi Sunak's financial affairs, with the Prime Minister offering his full support to the Chancellor. The inquiry called by Sunak is an attempt to draw a line under growing, growing questions about his financial arrangements. And the tightest UK labour market in living memory is failing to tempt people back into work, creating severe shortages for employers. Data this morning showed that unemployment is at levels comparable to the 1970s and job vacancies remain at record highs. Yet there are 570,000 fewer available workers than before the pandemic struck. We'll bring you more on that story later on in the programme. Well, with Parliament on recess this week, we're going to head towards England's beautiful West Country and speak to one of the UK's Metro Mayors. Labour's Dan Norris was elected West of England Metro Mayor last May, beating the Tories and providing his party with one of the few big wins of the night. Dan is Mayor for an area which includes Bristol, Bath and North East Somerset and South Gloucestershire. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Now, tell me what the people of Bristol and the West of England are concerned about at the moment. Well, I think it's it's the same as across the whole country. Um, people are really worried about the cost of living crisis. They're seeing everything go up in price, whether that's fuel bills, council tax bills, taxes, national insurance, you name it, it's going up but their wages are not matching that uh, and they're losing out. So it's a real terms cost of living crisis. And that includes pensioners too, who are not getting the support that they need really under such extreme price rise pressure. Well, the government's spending nine billion pounds in an attempt to help ease that, that cost of living problem. Uh, and that's a lot of other people's taxes. The reality is that the government can't, can't fix all of these rising prices, can it? No, it can't fix everything. But look, while £9 billion sounds like a lot of money, and it is, it's all relative. Uh, And if you've got a crisis where people are at a time of real pressure being left to fall through the gaps, that is not good government. Uh, And my view is that governments have to rise to the occasion. They have to find the money to do what's right by the people. Uh, It's really important that we don't have 
the huge worry and anxiety that's going to cause a lot of people. Uh, we need confidence back in our economy. We need confidence in our future. At the moment, everyone's gloomy. It's not good news. And we need to change that, I think. Is there anything that, that local councils and, and mayors can do to help with that soaring cost of living? Well, I think local councils have been under a lot of pressure. They've had huge cuts over, you know, not just recent years, but over the last decade or so. Uh, so they are not in the strongest positions to help, but I know they do what they can. And I give all credit to councils who work hard of all political persuasions to deal with the everyday realities that the government seem to be ignoring and have often created, I'm afraid. Uh, as Metro Mayor, well, I have limited responsibilities in that I deal with things like transport and housing and business and, and things like that, and skills and training. Uh, and it, I can do things, but they don't deliver immediately. Those are medium to longer term delivery timelines and what people need is support now. So if you're a pensioner worrying about how you're going to pay your bills, you need to know your pension is going to make sure that you get through that. Or if you're a worker who's working really hard, very anxious about the future, uh, and you can see that your pay packet is not doing what it used to do when you go shopping, and it's getting even worse, and it's predicted to get even worse, you need help now. Uh, promises in the future are not really helpful. Of course, what's needed is help now. More broadly, beyond inflation, what, what, what difference does having a mayor make to uh, the region that you cover? D does, does having a mayor for a, uh, an area as diverse as, as South Gloucestershire and, and Bristol, does, does it work to have, a, ha have a, a mayor covering an area like that? I think it does, and I think it does for a number of reasons. First of all, I think people do care passionately about their local communities and they're proud of their local region. Uh, not just in the west of England, where pride is very high, but in other parts of the country too. And I think you can galvanise that, that sort of feeling and that warmth and that purposefulness and that optimism for your region to actually get things done in a way that central government never can. Because central government, and I know it because I was a government minister and I was an MP for many years, it can't get down to the detail, the nitty-gritty on the day-by-day -day basis. In, as well as uh, local politicians. And so what I think Metro Mayors do is they sort of bridge the national and the local politics. And so, for example, I've been able to secure money from the government approaching sort of two thirds of a billion pounds now for transport for my region, which we desperately need because we have a, a poorer transport system than most other regions across England. And we need to address that. And without a Metro Mayor, that would not have happened and we would carry on falling behind other regions and we need to get level and then boost forward. I wanted to ask you about that actually because L London's public transport has long been the envy of much of the rest of the country. What sort of things are you doing to improve transport in, in, in Bristol and, and the surrounding area? Well London is the envy but it's because it's had an awful lot of investment and this is where money has to be found. In my view the capital London needs to have that excellent public transport system that it's got because of all the important things that come from that, people getting around, getting to work, socialising, advantages to business and everything else. And other parts of the country need that too. But we've never had the same amount of money. And I, I don't recollect exactly what the ratio is, but it's like one seventh of what per head is spent in London is spent in my region, for example. And yet my region is able to produce above its GDP figure. So we are net contributors to the country as la at large and yet we don't have a very good transport system. If we did, not only would my region benefit, but the country would benefit too. So we do need to do that. And the things that I want to see are pretty fundamental. At the moment, we have big traffic jams. It costs us 
you know, an awful lot of money, millions and millions and millions a year uh, in you know, delays and lack of productivity and one thing or another. So I am pushing ahead over the next five years with great urgency to get bus lanes put into our roads so that people can get on a reliable, efficient, affordable and safe public transport system where buses run across bus lanes speedily and, and on time uh, so that people can plan their lives about on the basis of that. Uh, and not be stuck in those awful traffic jams that we currently have. But that costs money, and it's a difficult thing to do. Bristol is, uh, and Bath are old cities, great cities, but old ones in many respects. And so their road layout is not made for the future, and it needs to be. Uh, and that's what that money will be doing. So on transport, money is key for catching up um, with London. More widely, what, what powers would you like that, that, you, don't, that you don't have? Well, I would certainly like to have more powers over the NHS, if that would be possible. Um, I see how our hospitals are run. Uh, they're excellent hospitals, but they don't always coordinate their efforts in, a, in as good a way as I would like. Um, the NHS is under tremendous pressure. The government talk about spending more year on year. And in strictly figures terms, that's true. But in real terms, given inflation and the demands that increase on the NHS every year, it's falling back and there's effectively real terms cuts year on year. Uh, and that is really bad news. Uh, and that was before the pandemic, uh, because I think the pandemic is used as an excuse by government for all sorts of things. And no doubt the Ukraine war will be too. But actually, a lot of these problems were made in, in Downing Street and, uh, and Whitehall. And they need, you know, really need to be changed because the NHS is the envy of the world. Um, I believe, you know, when you go abroad, people know about INHS, they compliment us on that, they recognise the importance of that. I have American friends, for example, who worry, to, worry and worry themselves about getting old or getting dementia or something like that because they know their health service won't support them and it'll cause huge stress to them and their families. Whereas we don't have that, our quality of life has been improved because of what a Labour government introduced all those years ago in creating the NHS. But we mustn't neglect it and I fear it is being neglected. And in my region in particular, dentistry is in dire straits. It is almost impossible, if not impossible now, to get an NHS dentist. It's as if it's been privatised by stealth. The dispute between the government and dentists um, is not at all helpful. And one wonders, has the government done it on purpose? Because so many dentists are leaving the NHS. Uh, and so people who are desperately reliant on their health, good health for their teeth, um, are missing out. And that worries me because young people... Uh, in particular, need to have tip-top teeth uh, and tooth healthcare and all the rest of that, um, in, in you know, for obvious reasons. So that's on on the NHS. On levelling up, this is a key buzzword of of the government. Plenty of plans uh, for levelling up, particularly uh, in the north of England. Do you worry that the West Country uh, and some parts of West Country, uh, uh, you know, are very poor, particularly particularly Cornwall, which I know, I know which isn't your region, but in, in your direction, do you worry that the West Country sometimes gets forgotten, not just by this government, but by governments of, of both colours? Well, that's partly why Metro Mayors are a good thing, because they give a regional profile up in Westminster and in Whitehall and to number 10. And so you can point to the particular concerns you have in your region, and that's a good thing about having a metro mayor. But what I'd say is that I'm always amazed that given that we are reliant on new technologies to solve an awful lot of our problems, I'm still amazed that number 10 uh, doesn't use data and modern technology to recognise where real need is. 
Let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Uh, joined now by uh, Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrins. Leanne, thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, uh, some very interesting data on the UK's labour market out today. Just bring us the details of that. Yes, you and good. Hello, and it's nice to see you again and be on here. So, the data showed us that living standards are falling at the fastest pace in more than eight years. And this is really significant at the moment as average earnings, excluding bonuses, rose 4.1% from a year earlier. However, the Office of National Statistics said adjusted for prices over the same period. Now they've dropped 1.3%. So that's the most since 2013. So what these figures are really showing is how the soaring cost of living is really depriving us Britons here of benefits of a strong labour market. So unemployment fell to 3.8% in the three months through February. That's the lowest since the end of 2019 and matching levels not seen since the 1970s. Meanwhile, job vacancies rose to a new record of almost 1.28 million in March, reflecting an acute shortage of workers. Now, we've really seen the shortage of workers when it comes to travel. We've seen all those queues at um, on the roads as people try to get into the country. And we've also seen queues at the airports because there's just not enough staff at the moment working there. But data also suggests that stellar growth may be actually slowing. So we are seeing some slower growth come out of the UK. Yeah, fascinating picture. So a record number of vacancies, but wages not keeping up. Uh, with uh, those inflation numbers. And uh, Crispin Blunt has been uh, very much in the news in the last 24 hours. Bring us up to date with that. That's been moving in the last couple of hours, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been moving really quickly, hasn't it? And Crispin Blunt, a former minister, he has now apologised over his defence of a colleague who's been convicted of sexually assaulting a teenage boy. So Crispin Blunt claimed Imran Ahmed Khan had been the victim of a dreadful miscarriage of justice. Comments he now said caused significant harm. Let me give you a little bit of a background when it comes to Imran Ahmed Khan. So yesterday, after... The Southwark Crown Court jury took just five hours to decide the 48-year-old was guilty of sexual assault. And that came after a two-week trial, a pretty quick decision there. The Conservatives did expel him from the party, but Mr Khan's legal team said he plans to appeal the verdict as he continues to deny any wrongdoing. And also the Labour Party chair, that's Annalise Dodds, she labelled those comments by Crispin Blunt as disgraceful, while four MPs have resigned from a parliamentary committee that was headed by Crispin Blunt. And Crispin Blunt himself, we now know, has stepped down from that LGBTQ committee. Crispin Blunt, interestingly, actually went to some days of the trial in support of Imran Ahmed Khan. But now we do see the fallout happening and he has issued an apology. Our latest from Westminster. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Leanne Gerrins. Well, let's get latest now on the COVID picture. Boris Johnson rejected calls this week from NHS officials for new measures to curb the spread of coronavirus, saying that hospital data don't justify shifting the countries, uh, shifting from the country's living with COVID plan. The NHS Confederation had wanted changes to the strategy to ease pressure on hospitals, uh, which, is, which it says are struggling to deal with critically high demand 
for emergency care. More than 20,000 patients are currently in hospital with COVID-19, the most since February. That's uh, February of last year, that is. Now let's speak to Oksana Pysik from the UCL School of Pharmacy. Oksana, thanks so much for joining us again on Bloomberg Westminster. Now bring us up to date with um, the latest uh, infection figures. I think a lot of people have perhaps have got their uh, eye off the ball a little bit with COVID. Uh, how many people roughly have got COVID around the country at the moment? And, and how bad is the situation in hospitals? Uh, well, we're looking at uh, the REACT study showing that one in 16 people in England, so that's over 6% in terms of the um, uh, infection rate itself. So certainly the, the numbers are, are very high. Um, and this is having knock-on consequences, not so much on hospital beds themselves, uh, but looking at the even just demand for ambulances. So many people are having to wait for over an hour, an hour to get an ambulance, um, and there are long waits in A&E. Again, over t- past two and a half years, of course, the healthcare system has been under tremendous long-term pressure, um, affecting both health workers and the health system itself. So. Uh, instead of becoming more resilient, we have a weaker NHS than when the pandemic started. And we're seeing uh, those cracks now with uh, very high levels of uh, COVID infection having knock-on consequences. So a lot of people in hospital at the moment, but it, it, that's probably a function of, uh, as you say, the huge number of the large portion of the population who have COVID. So a lot of these people in hospital who just happen to be COVID positive, is that correct? They're not all being treated for COVID at the moment. Well, so certainly in terms of, again, looking, there are going to be people who um, have milder uh, cases of COVID and, and, and they're being um, you know, hospitalized for uh, other reasons as well. But that still occupies space and time within the health system such that if we're treating emergencies such as uh, strokes, heart attacks, et cetera, and if you're waiting for an ambulance at home for an hour and, and you have either a stroke or a heart, heart attack, especially with a, you know, you need to act fast. So in those circumstances, it's sort of almost, you know, that, that argument isn't particularly strong because we need to ensure that we're doing something to strengthen our NHS to take on this reality of peaks and waves where we will continue to see um, high levels. Uh, we're going into springtime. Uh, so far, the new recombinant variant only seems to have a slight growth advantage. Uh, so we could see, you know, these. Uh, we're not quite through with this um peak yet. It'll probably take a couple weeks. We expect those numbers to go down, um, and that has been uh, the, the pattern, then build up back again uh, towards the, the winter months. And, and part of living with COVID means that we're, we have health systems robust enough um, to take care of everyone, whether they have COVID or if they have other health conditions, cancer, etc. It's all connected. Hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because we used to, uh, back in the early days of the pandemic, we were busy studying those waves and looking at those numbers very closely. Uh, and mm-hmm. many people have sort of uh, are not paying attention to that. But just talk, tell yeah. me, talk to me about the, the variants. So BA2 is the, the dominant one at the moment, right? And, and, and how, how yeah. dominant is that at the moment? BA2 is, is uh, dominant across the UK. And then also we're seeing that um, spread globally. It could be that... Um, the recombinant variants of uh, BA2 and Omicron uh, could potentially uh, overtake that. Uh, the good news in this instance, however, is that we continue to see that n- neither of these variants are more severe. 
So we're looking at decreased uh, severity of symptoms as a result of infection, and that has been what, uh, particularly with vaccination, has meant that we can um, largely move on to this new phase of the pandemic, and that is due to the efficacy of vaccines. But we know reinfections <laughs> continue to put a strain, and that you can have that immunity from the vaccine and from infection uh, start to go, that protection starts to go down. Um, and then many people who all got vaccinated at the same time are vulnerable um, at the same time as well. We see that also in uh, labor shortages when, when uh, people are all off sick at the same time, uh, that that creates um, you know, chaos and flights and, and other aspects as well. So this con- we will continue to see um, over time, hopefully, reduced severity. I could become even milder over time. I wouldn't say that at this stage it's equivalent to flu um, just because of the, the number of vulnerable people that we have in society that are still affected and the consequences of long COVID, but it could get to that stage. And um, But it does mean that we, we also need to be prepared for when numbers will, will surge again and getting those, like right now in the springtime, we're having a spring booster campaign uh, for those that are most vulnerable um, and are more likely to have negative consequences as a result of infection. So really it's in terms of like strengthening the NHS and ensuring that we are keeping up to date with uh, booster shots for those who need them. Do, do, do we have a problem with waning immunity? Just anecdotally, I know so many people who have had COVID for a, a second time, not that long after the, oh, the yeah. first time they had it. And it does, it does seem to be spreading pretty quickly around the country. You say 6% of the population have it. Yeah, so in terms of the, um, if, if we look at the reinfection rate, you know, each time you are reinfected, so many people are now in sort of their third round of COVID. Uh, however, we do see that it, you do have, while you're still vulnerable towards infection, the severity of the symptoms should be less. So if you have been infected in the past, um, in addition to the vaccine, if you get reinfected, you should, for most people, you should see not as severe. So that is one aspect. But definitely we know that um, just having the infection itself or being vaccinated at this stage with the new types of variants that have uh, emerged uh, over the past year, reinfection is going to continue to be part of how we deal with COVID. Um, and that means that we also have to look at um, other methods. So in the U.S., uh, for instance, uh, under Biden's plan, if you go into a pharmacy um, and you get tested for COVID and you're positive, you walk away with an antiviral medication. Um, and those are other interesting options to look at how to really reduce that burden on the health system and also just make sure that um, people have less complications. Because one in 37 people in the community currently have long COVID. That's point. Uh, uh, Seven million people nationally, and um, that's according to the ONS figures as well. Um, mm-hmm. And that is, that's a, if we look at for people who've had it um, for more than a year, so a year of long COVID, that figure goes up to seven hundred eighty thousand people. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.